One of the things that I want to point out this week is a question has been asked in, in, in prior weeks about stigma and is it just like something that we just see naturally or do people actually think about starting stigmas? And I've made the case, I've told you, I believe stigma is intentional. I believe people look to create stigma. I showed you all sorts of cases that one week about different stigmas that we thought were really helpful. So I was just driving on Friday and I actually heard people on the radio talking about creating stigma. It's a small example, but I thought how odd it was that they're going to decide to make a stigma uh, and they're actually talking about it on the radio like we're going to stigmatize something. In this case, the stigma is people who do not know about local political elections like the L.A. mayor's race should be stigmatized and ashamed of themselves so that we all learn about local politics. Now, as I've said in the past, maybe that's a good thing that we know things. But what's interesting is how a select group of people decide that we should shame people into a certain behavior. So for those of you who have asked where does stigma come from, just listen to this one-and-a-half-minute clip that comes from a radio show here in L.A. talking about that stigma. Do you want to click on that? Uh, Jim, <laughs> you've been covering the mayor's race here, and it uh, really hasn't been all that exciting. Um, Would that be should, an understatement? Yeah. Should, should Mayor Bloomberg guys hand over here and add some spice to this race? <laughs> uh, no, he should not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the race is, is actually a little more interesting than people think. But we've only got uh, two weeks from Tuesday. People will be going uh, to the polls in the primary. The two top vote getters will have a runoff uh, May 21st. And a really, really important vote in L.A. Even if people aren't excited, they should try and get interested because we've got a structural deficit every, every year that's really killing the city and taking away services. And uh, so they should pay attention. A little scolding from me. Do you, do you think people are paying attention? And I mean, why not? This is the second biggest city in the country, and we have a huge mayor's race going on, and I, no one's talking about it at the water coolers I'm at. This is the only big city, in my opinion, in America where there is no sh- social stigma for knowing absolutely nothing about local <laughs> politics. So if you're in New York City and you don't know, if you don't have an opinion on the mayor or in Miami or Philly, uh, Chicago, you've got to have an opinion on the mayor in those cities, at least a minor one about, you know, the sidewalks, the streets. Here in L.A., you cannot have an opinion or not even know who the mayor is, it's and there is like a no stigma. Honors? Yeah, I mean, people don't care, and you, you won't be embarrassed at a cocktail party, and, and you, we should start embarrassing people. <laughs> okay, I'll do that this weekend. <laughs> now, did you catch that? Isn't that interesting? That's exactly how stigma begins, and I'm not saying it's wrong, <laughs> to know something about local politics. In fact, if you've attended my public policy class here at APU, I'm constantly encouraging students to do everything they can to learn about what's going on, learn about the world, read news. I'm not against this at all. But there is a little bit of a collusion here, it seems. Like, we decide what the value should be. People should care about the mayoral race and local politics. And then we're going to enforce that somehow by doing something to get people to do it. What is that thing we're going to do? We're going to embarrass them. We're going to stigmatize them. We're going to create a stigma where you'd be embarrassed not to know about the mayor, and that somehow is a good thing. And maybe in this case you think, well, this is a minor example. But what I'd like to point out is I think this is just a minor example of a very big problem where we've handed over to academic institutions, to the media. Uh, I wish I could say to government, but they're almost not even in the lead on this anymore. We've handed over to these institutions uh, these thought leaders in our society the right to stigmatize us to behave the way they want us to. And clearly, as we pointed out in past weeks, these thought leaders uh, do not like Christianity, do not want us to be speaking about it publicly, and for that reason, 
we've all been stigmatized. And I think that while they're not going to admit it on the radio like they did in this case, uh, and maybe these guys are just goofing around, but I don't think so. I think this is the way they really think. Yeah, I think there's really been an effort to say, enough, enough. This is a moment where we can live our life in this country under a secular standard. We don't need all this. Uh, Going along with this, by the way, I was reading today one more interesting thing that came up. I saw this headline on uh, Yahoo News, Tim Tebow to speak at anti-gay, anti-Semitic church. And I thought, wow. I mean, just the headline caught my attention because I thought maybe he was going to Westboro Baptist Church or something. Like, that was the first thing I thought to my head. I'm like, he's not that dumb. Um, the church he's going to is in Dallas. It's Robert Jeffress' church, if anybody knows who that is. He was the pastor that came out in support of Rick Perry's uh, presidential uh, nomination. He was pushing for him. And he's, you know, he's pretty right-wing, and he's got a few controversial views. But the most interesting thing was reading people's comments in response to the article. The article just says he's going there. Nobody knows what he's going to say. So just by saying I'm going to this church, the person who created the headline called it anti-gay, anti-Semitic church. And as I started reading the comments, there were people who actually commented on what this headline represented. And they said, you took this headline from somebody else's characterization of the church, and that characterization is actually erroneous. Now, I'm not going to defend the church. I don't know that much about his ministry. But... There were probably 300 comments to this article very quickly, and as I started reading them, I noticed a number of them actually were saying, hey, what happened to the ability to just speak in this country? And I was surprised, because I saw enough blowback saying, so if we don't agree with your liberal views, then we're not allowed to speak anymore? And these came from a whole wide range of people, some of whom identified themselves as Christian, some who said they weren't, One person wrote in and said, I'm Jewish, and I've looked at what they say, and I don't think it's anti-Semitic at all. In fact, I think your headline is erroneous. I noticed that later on, the headline changed in some places to Tim Tebow to speak at controversial church. (laughs) Um, Now, again, I don't know what he's going to say. I don't know what they say. But I was actually encouraged by the fact that so many people in their comments wrote in and said, you're trying to censor us because we don't believe in your politically correct view of everything. What is a religion if they can't say what they believe? Peter? Yeah, you know, I actually saw that and had like the exact same set of reactions. I mean, I didn't read through comments. I usually try to ignore those. But um, yeah, I kind of wondered the same thing. And I don't know if you were following this uh, leading up to the inauguration, but Louis Giglio? Giglio. 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 I always get that wrong. He, um, he was going to speak at the inauguration, and then someone like pulled the text of some sermon he had delivered in like the early 90s, saying, you know, like, oh yeah, you know, um, you know, we, we need to love gay people, but it's not God's best. It was it was really really restrained and moderate, especially for like the early 90s in a you know decently publicized church, and like you know, you know, Louis Louis Giglio to be pulled because of anti-gay remarks. Like that was the headline. I remember kind of thinking like, well, I'm I don't know, I'm I'm pretty liberal on like gay marriage and, and laws and stuff like that for a Christian, but like that that kind of felt like me being pushed outside the tent a little more, you know? Like I was I was like, wow, like that's you know, and, and I and I was talking to some friends and they were saying, well that's because like you know, the president feels like he has to kind of kowtow to these groups that helped him win the election a little more, and, you know, he wants to like show these this ally. But yeah, I just I kind of felt similarly like, ooh, so like the only thing about me might be that I disagree with that as a life choice and all of a sudden I'm you know I'd be similarly put out and yeah that that kind of actually 
when we started this series, I was like thinking about that and how it was kind of this isolating feeling. Sure, I've I've seen people in indignation. Uh, you know, if, if somebody were to say that that homosexuality is deviant, using that word, just that person might as well. I mean, they're they've self-destructed. They're all over that, right? However, I've heard people on the left refer to Christians as fascist, a very loaded word, and one that you could say is just not appropriate to use. Uh, I don't even know what circumstances we should use anymore. That word has so much baggage now after the 20th century. And yet nobody you know, responds with that indignation as well. That's really what we were looking at in that week about tolerance, which is such a strange situation where uh, unless you tow a certain line, that's influenced by those thought makers. So yeah, Louis Giglio was, I think, you could say a casualty of this tolerance level. Like to say that anyone who has a view on anything cannot really represent the country anymore. But by contrast, if you watch the inaugural parade, uh, it represented every single like different group you could imagine. I mean, they went as far as they could to include everybody they could think of, the Native American. I mean, they're trying to include everything. And people commented, but there really wasn't a very visible uh, place for people of faith, right? Again, because it seems like we tolerate only the things we want. Jolene? Would it be appropriate for there to be representation of faith at a political event, considering that technically there's supposed to be a separation of church and state? I mean, I'm just, just, just my question. Yeah, I think actually, I believe so, because I think what we're doing is we're buying into a view that says for us to have a state, it must be secular. And that is exactly the view that drives our faith underground. Because we have started to believe that secular means that in the public space, religion is not present. You keep your faith to yourself. And I actually don't even believe first that that was ever intended. So even under a separation of church and state, which is not really a constitutional principle, it's more of an adopted principle that comes later, it was meant, if you look at constitutionally, to allow the states to establish churches. And it was meant for 200 years of the Republic uh, to celebrate religion without favoring one or the other, but to allow them all. We've reverted to not allowing any of them, mostly because we don't want to allow one of them. That's what it comes down to. But yeah, I mean, it's still a good question because people now question the role of faith and should it be there at all. But I think it's hard for us to answer the question because we're all receiving the same stigma and we all think these are original ideas. Like, well, maybe we shouldn't have faith in the public square. Uh, but I'm not sure we're even uh, lucid enough to have that conversation because we're also stigmatized. But then, then also, if we allow one, then we're going to have to allow them all. Agreed. And that's something that I don't think most religions and, quite frankly, most Christians can handle. Uh, I actually think that it's the seculars who have the biggest trouble with it because, I mean, I think there's a myth here that being secular would be neutral. It's not neutral. It actually allows one group to determine that we should have no faith. We're going to talk more about that next week, so I'm going to keep it there. Here's the question I want to cover with you tonight. Isn't persecution good for the church? I mean, just go with me for a minute and just assume that there is a stigma. It's silencing us. It's not what's meant to be. Our faith is being driven underground. Just go with me for a moment. Shouldn't we embrace that? Isn't persecution good? I mean, we say that, don't we, when we say, look, whenever the church is persecuted, it explodes everywhere. Isn't that good? So I'm not unfair to you. I'm going to put up some questions to help you think through this question, and I want you to respond. Here are the questions. Does the silencing of Christians in the West, again, accept my premise that that's what's going on, 
because I think we're seeing it, but you might not agree. Just go with me tonight. Does the silencing of Christians in the West constitute persecution? Is the silencing of Christians in the West the type of persecution that fuels the church elsewhere? So maybe it is persecution, maybe it's not, but if it is persecution, is it the good kind of persecution that makes the church just really go? Has there been any precedent for the church exploding in growth when it's been self-censored? And is this persecution, or are we becoming ashamed of the gospel in favor of our own comfort and security? So maybe I'm stacking the deck a little bit just by even putting up those questions. Sorry. I, I just didn't want to put up an abstract question and have it go all over the place and then surprise you with some parameters. Um, I really want to hear from you because we're now shifting the series to how are we supposed to live in light of what's going on. And I want to hear, like, do you really think that we're being persecuted? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to my mind is when, you know, the disciples of Christ are saying, like, they're worrying about things and God says, you know, Hey, look, you know, they per- persecuted me, they put me on a cross, and they hated me, even though I love them. How much more are they going to persecute you? So I think God is saying that persecution will happen being a Christian. So I think there is a part of that that you have to accept. I think the part that is unacceptable here and why it's not good is that those fellows and people continue devoutly through God to live their life, to establish the church, and to continue forward and die for it. But today, it's like, oh, we're being persecuted, and we, I don't want to be persecuted. So it's like that what you talked about today at church about that relationship, the both, you know, both ways. It's sort of like we want the goods and not the God, right? We want to get away from getting persecuted. So in that case, because we're turning ourselves away from what God said is going to happen, we're sort of fueling this power for other people to persecute us, and then it's not good. Okay. Someone else want to jump in? You read the cases of people who were losing their jobs um, as a result of it being found out that they were Christians. I think that is not to the extent that persecution happens in other countries where your very life is threatened, but in this case, at least your livelihood is threatened. So, you know, that's something. It's maybe a milder <laughs> form than actually fearing for your life. But... I think there is something to say that like, you could lose your job and you're really good about your family if it's known that you're a Christian. Okay, so every week we've been reading some cases uh, that show up in the courts, that show up in different places where people have had to fight to keep their rights. In the cases you're citing where people have lost their jobs because of their faith, uh, we talked about some that involved nursing, right? We talked about those which are near and dear to your heart. We also talked about one, for example, where a guy lost his job at Cisco because in a book he had written, he had said that he believed in traditional marriage. I mean, he never brought it up at work, never said anything. Uh, he just wrote it in a book, and he was fired from his job. right? And we read so many of them, I'm not going to go into them. But you're saying in those kinds of cases, uh, you think that is a form of persecution. Huh? Yes? I think it's, a, it's also, I think the thing that complicates it slightly is that there's not necessarily parallels in other, I don't know, it feels like there aren't necessarily parallels in other times and places with, like, you know, uh, Christianity expanded to the point where it was the dominant, and then it's as it's receding in favor of secularism. I don't know that there's like we don't necessarily see that in the developing church elsewhere today as much. It is kind of it feels like more of a phenomena of the West, but I, I think it, it could be considered persecution. It's just you know it's it's different than you know you're forced underground. You have to be part of like the the you know, Chinese state church that gives fealty to the state over you know over God. It, it's a little 
different, but I think it, it could persecute or it could constitute persecution. It's just you know a different in uh, I guess practice, if not character. I said the word West, by the way, because I look at Europe and I see that they're ahead of us uh, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, maybe the American religious experience continues to confound its critics to some degree. Uh, it really does, because people predicted that we would long have ditched this, especially with all the effort that is going on in our academic institutions and the media to eradicate religion. Uh, religion in America is stubborn. Uh, they can't eradicate it. We're like a weed that keeps coming back. Uh, and some people celebrate that we're seeing nominal Christians fall away, so the church is being purified. Agree with that in some respects, that that might be a good thing, so we don't have just nominal Christians along with really devoted Christians uh, at least from a public relations part, right? Because they're always measuring what Christians think, and a lot of us think, well, I don't know that all those people really are obedient Christians. But Europe is ahead of us in that way. It seems like they are an example. That's why I said the West and not America, because there the stigma has kind of done away with the Christian faith to a large degree. Megan? I'm not totally sure what I think about this, but it seems like... At least in the past, you would think about persecution as being direct and apparent, and and the persecutor, almost, or I guess the persecuted, would have a chance, I guess, to maybe like push through and like you know kind of come head to head with that persecution and maybe you know like give their life for Christ. And I feel like that act seemed to be what fueled people coming to Christ is because they saw like this person cares so much about their faith that they're willing to face that adversity and sacrifice for it. And I guess the difference I see with some of the like persecution we're talking about is it feels so much more subtle. So for one, like I feel like the visibility is very different because it feels like you're not you're not necessarily able to witness it happening. It's so like insidious, I guess, that it just it's almost kind of like you know, the wool just pulled over your eyes. Like you never really see the Christian being attacked because instead they're sort of just like hidden or they're just kind of like stepped over and in a lot of the cases I think the ones where like someone is losing their job because they're Christian that's maybe a little bit different but along those lines it feels like a lot of these modern examples like there's not maybe necessarily that same opportunity to push through and like accept the consequences it seems like they're the persecuted is like a lot less like almost like they're kind of powerless in this situation like they're just they're just I don't know how to describe it, but it just feels different. It feels like you wouldn't look at many of these cases and say, oh, I'm inspired to be a Christian because of them. It looks like they kind of are just disappearing almost from, I don't know. I think you used the word insidious, right? Did you use that word? Because that word has been on my mind uh, to say that this form of persecution, if it was that, is insidious because it's subtle and it's hidden and it creeps up on you and it's not something that you can see or that even others see. I think the nature of stigma causes other people not to even recognize it as persecution. And by the way, I think it's so insidious that Christians don't recognize it as persecution. I haven't even decided it is, but the effort to stigmatize Christians, I think, is a form of of persecution. Um, I think most Christians will make statements when I hear them. I think, oh my God, you've bought into it hook, line, and sinker, and you don't realize it. You think that's your idea. You think you came to that on your own. You don't realize the degree to which you've been stigmatized into believing what you just said. And that is why I think it's insidious, because it's almost like snuck up on us. Chris. So if following those four sub-bullets, you know, you know, I think you're asking us if persecution for the church in the West, right? So you're not, so people that are listening can know that. It's not just in general. But in general, I mean, 
you know, God says it's going to happen. I think it is good, like you said, for the points of, you know, weeding out the chaff. But it seems like we, the only reason it's happening now is because people are giving power to it. So, you know, someone can take your life, like back in the times like with Rome, and, you know, they killed Christians and slaughtered them, and it's like they were believing they would die for it, but now it's like we sort of, like, jump sides because we don't want to be persecuted. Mm -hmm. And because we do that, we give the power to this insidious, brilliant design or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's like, well, how easy is it for them to diminish your faith if you're the one attacking your faith for them? And so, I mean, I don't, with all the examples you gave, is it spoken about in media a lot? If that's the measure of how open it is, no, it's not. It is hidden. But if it's, like, just happening, yes, it is happening. And there's plenty, like you said, 40 pages worth of examples of people getting outlandish, you know, rebukes of, you know, losing jobs or whatever. So I don't think it's it's hidden. It's just that people aren't willing to do the second part of the equation, which is follow through with their faith, set themselves up, be the light of the world. If you're not going to do that, then of course, like, you're going to let some person who doesn't agree with you, let you tell them why you don't, why you now agree with them and why your own faith was wrong. Yeah, I agree with that. I'll I'll tell you, um, just going through some of these things, just to kind of answer some of them, the silencing of Christians in the West constitute persecution. I think it does. Uh, it's not the same persecution that they're facing in China or uh, in other countries where they're literally giving their lives uh, to do that, but it is a form of persecution. So let's just at least call it that. Um, is silencing the, of Christians in the West a type of persecution that fuels the church elsewhere? I think that's where the distinction is. I think that there's never been a case for us to know. There's never been a precedent to say, if we just remain silent, which is something that goes against the Scriptures, if we just somehow took our faith private completely and without ever sharing the gospel or being identified as Christians or being salt, being a light, if we actually took the light and put it under the, the you know, put it, instead of putting it on the lampstand, we put it under a basket uh, and actually reversed what the scriptures say, I don't know that that's, we could say, well, we were persecuted and that made the church explode and in its growth kept going. Uh, I think that constitutes closer to quenching what is going on in the church. Uh, because we're becoming ashamed of the gospel. Uh, we're being stigmatized into silence by our own self-censorship. And so we have ourselves to blame in a way. I see that totally different as the person whose witness is, I'm willing to die for my belief in the Lord. You're going to take my life? Take my life. You're going to jail me? Jail me. It seems like the church really responds there. And the Holy Spirit is really poured out in those instances. Um, as opposed to when we are silencing ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, into making effective and truly believing disciples of people, I think the only kind of persecution that would be good for the church is that it produces people who stand up and say, I don't care that you embarrass me, I don't care that you disagree with me, I don't care that you shame me, here I stand in belief of this, and like trying to tell people regardless of the persecution that's in place. So if it's not doing that, then no, it's not good for the church. Okay, Monique? I just think, like, the danger of it, at least the self-censored part, is when it isn't so, like, such an obvious stand, like, your life or something like that. When it's something that's slow, it's just such a tepid environment. It's, like, slowly boiling something, right, until it's, like, fully cooked or dead or whatever. It's, like, it's a slow thing. So the danger is is that it actually starts to change hearts. I think that's where the danger is. 
and we're obviously responsible to be self-aware like we need to wake up right but really sometimes you don't notice and like you're saying you're around it it's a certain environment you start to maybe feel a little bit ashamed you don't know why then maybe you come up with reasons why like oh well i guess i shouldn't i should just do good things because it's actually going to do more for the church through my actions and you know you start to believe some of the stereotypes and you come up with all these like excuses and slowly i think your kind of your ideology or your your heart and your view of faith changes like over time that's what's dangerous about it. that's why people are falling away yeah i think that's where it sneaks up on you i mean like i said the number of conversations i've had with people where they've parroted back to me arguments from a secular perspective where i think are you reading the scriptures where in the scriptures is jesus saying that we should just allow the public space to be completely secular and keep our faith to ourselves Forget whether you believe public should be secular or not. Keeping our faith to ourselves, I mean, that is the definition of public versus private. It's just a strange thing. Uh, I don't know where that comes from. But I, I, I feel like Megan's word insidious really is an important word because I think it is intentional. And it grieves me to see so many people not even realizing that they've been, I don't want to use the word brainwashed, but we've adopted, we've adopted the arguments that have been promulgated and sent out in the society, and those people know that it's working. You know, I mean, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist if I tell you that Yahoo News looks liberal. But I can't tell you the number of articles that I read on there, not just about religion, but like they're constantly using these very loaded words. And I wonder, like, I mean, I'm not under the illusion that media is neutral. I I, I lost that in the second grade, I think, when they stopped, you know, believing that the media is supposed to be neutral and unbiased. But... It really is strange how much they sensationalize right-wing, Christian, anything like that. It's like if there's a story, they zoom in on it. And, you know, Yahoo News for people on the web is like one of the most read things that people go to because it's like their homepage for a lot of people. And I just think, yeah, I mean, this isn't just accidental. The people who are writing there, the people that the stories they decide to publish, it's almost like they're on a mission. Uh, And that just grieves me when I see people like that the mission has worked and I catch it in myself. I, too, I mean, let me just not stand here and tell you, I, too, am ashamed of the gospel at times when I'm ashamed of myself for having been ashamed later because of the stigma that silences me. Uh, We're all feeling it. It's not like I'm standing here and immune to it in a bubble. Uh, We're all feeling it. Okay, let's look at some scripture real briefly because I think we're now starting to talk about what we're called to do. I've already cited things in previous weeks about how we're supposed to be distinct from the culture, uh, we cite often from Jesus' words about salt and light and being distinct. His whole Sermon on the Mount was meant to make us really distinct in our ethic and how we respond. But let's go to the book of Daniel. We looked at the Old Testament a while. Let's look at the book of Daniel, chapter 3. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me read to you something here. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, 
You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the blazing furnace. You know, a lot of times when we read this story, we've been told to apply it to a modern context to say, well, we don't have idols anymore, so, you know, we look for modern day idols and we put them up. But this is a different story. It's not really about idolatry if you look at it very carefully. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire had conquered many peoples. And so one of the purposes of calling together all these officials that we have mentioned here, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, notice it even includes the provincial officials. The reason they're calling together all of these people is because he's trying to find some way to find unity and harmony in all of these various conquered peoples. They're all different. They probably have different faiths. They have rivalries. He's trying to find a way to have peace in the Babylonian Empire. So what does he do? He's setting up an idol to worship. This really isn't just about idolatry and not worshiping idols. It's about a king who's making a political decision. And I see a great parallel to what's going on in our country today. You know, like if there's all these religions, it's going to be kind of tough because, you know, people who really believe in a religion are going to have friction with their religions because they actually believe that their religion is right. Uh, somebody has said that the best way to have tolerance of all the religions is just have people not believe in their religion. You know, that way you could have actually some sort of like, you know, unity among various religions. You could have that kind of interfaith dialogue if nobody actually takes their religion seriously. Nobody thinks that my religion is right. We just think, oh, it's a nice philosophy to have. It's a nice tradition that my forefathers have had. In those cases, you could have a lot of great interfaith dialogue. Everybody will get along because nobody's insisting that they believe in anything. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar might have been doing here. By calling together all these various groups from all these places in the empire, he's saying, let's just focus on one thing. Let's worship the king. Surely we can all agree on that. Worshiping the king. Right. So going forward in Daniel, starting in verses 12. But there are some Jews among you, his people. His people came to report to him. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Look at the courage of the words that they speak. To say that we're going to be protected, we don't even need to make a defense. Some of us might have said, I need to first make a defense. They're like, we don't even need to make a defense, we'll be protected. We think that's an immense place of faith, but even more importantly, is their posture of surrender to God no matter what he does. I think the most important words of this whole story are, but even if he does not. It's a place where you come before the Lord and say, I believe you can save me, I believe you will save me, but even if you don't save me, I'm going to do what you call me to do. You can see that I'm starting to hint that maybe our posture in our current society needs to be a little bit more like that. That our comfort 
and our desire to avoid being stigmatized or called out, to lose jobs, to lose status, to lose clients, to lose friends, might be putting us in a place where we actually would just avoid the furnace altogether if we would and think, what good does that serve God if I get burned up? That wouldn't serve anybody. Maybe if I live to fight another day, I might just accidentally blurt out something and tell somebody about Jesus later. That's not what they say. Yes. But that's chapter 3. So Daniel's chapter 1 through 2, doesn't it describe that those three, they go through a process of getting put into positions of power, right? So I see there that a question should be asked of, okay, but isn't it also important then to be part of that system in some level? Because without that, they're making this proclamation for God here, but they may have been (laughs) treated differently had they not been at such a high position. It's a very, very good question. And the reason it's a good question is we have struggled together as a group when we've looked at that list of who are the influence makers in culture, right? And we ask that question. Okay, so we know that Christians are nowhere near the influence centers. We've repeatedly looked at that, and I think most of us agree. And I think the research on that from J.D. Hunter is very well done. He's, he's a brilliant scholar. Uh, but we've also asked the follow-up question, which is, well, then should we be at those centers? Uh, Hunter himself says, no, that's not our mission. Our mission is not to change culture or change the world. Our, our, our mission is to change individual lives and people we interact with. That's his view. But it does leave the question open because we're in the book of Daniel. Like you said, it wasn't just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Actually, we find out that throughout the book of Daniel, at least the first six chapters, the part we can understand really well, uh, that part, Daniel himself is repeatedly put in places of position that influence people. Uh, This is a theme that's repeated throughout the Old Testament. We see Joseph, even sold into slavery, rises to a high rank in Egypt to protect his family, Israel, and its its people who will begin the tribes, right, and eventually to incubate, in a way, the whole nation of Israel in Egypt over a long period of time. So it isn't that God is opposed to this. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament, it says that we're to not only pray for the peace of the cities that we're in as captives, but to actually seek their good, because that will be good for us as well. So God seems, when he looks at this in the Old Testament, which is a lot more history and a lot more things that we have to work with, to favor, in the book of Daniel, these examples of Daniel rising in the government, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are people who are in positions of at least provincial authority over some of their people. So I don't think that it answers the question completely. I will say that in practice, though, it's going to take a long time. One of the things that's a reality is, even if you said, I think we should start to get into those places so that we can change the culture or reverse the trend, those doors are often locked to us. That's actually part of the persecution. Just looking at it, uh, going through, they did the best they could in whatever <coughs> position they were in. They didn't actually seek after these high positions. The model there would be for us to do the best we can wherever we are, not to seek after these higher positions, but if it's for us to be in those, we will get there somehow. Okay. I think that's actually another perspective that's actually really well taken. Uh, that the question is, if we observe descriptively that they were brought into these positions, does the, can we translate that into a prescription that Christians should seek them? And I would tell you that many, many people are uncomfortable uh, seeing that. And the people who are, are the ones who want to change the whole world and change the whole U.S. with just a few strokes of legislation. And that's you know, those people, unfortunately, are the furthest from ever being able to do it, right? Just the, 
That's, that's going to take too long to explain. But the people who want to change through legislation have the least chance of getting there because of the, the people who are in that position. Other comments? Yes. I think, though, like if they were probably on their way up, even though it was not something they sought after or kind of happened to them, if they were like told you wouldn't get this position unless you renounce God, they probably would have you know, stood up sooner. Like I, Showing up their character, it shows a lot because they had more to lose once they were at the top and had all this power. It's like you have more to lose by not um, bowing down to this idol. So I don't think it's about like just fit in for a little while and kind of lie about not really believing this until you get to the top and then unleash your faith on everybody. Like, I don't think that's a good um, philosophy or like strategy to have to maneuver the world by, I don't know, putting on a fake cloak, I guess, and then thinking one day you're just going to take it off and everything's going to be fine because you probably will change along the way. But we can say those things in the comfort of this room, can't we? Think about it with me for a moment. If there was a fiery furnace outside, what would I do? Yeah, I mean... What do I do every day? There's no fiery furnace when I refuse to tell my clients about Jesus. We could use a little bit more uh, standing close to the flames uh, than we do. And that's what I think is so interesting about this story is it's remarkable, uh, especially because they were willing to do it even if God didn't come through. And I think that's what makes it remarkable, right? Well, I think this story is just a perfect example of the kind of persecution that would be good for the church. For example, this is the kind of thing that forces people to stand up and say, I refuse to do what you say because it utterly goes against what I believe and I will die for that. Yeah, this, and remember this story how he had heated up the fiery furnace so hot that the men who threw them in there got swallowed up in the flames? Right? I mean, so this is one of those stories where you think this is the persecution that has really seen God's movement in the world. Uh, maybe not the one where we're too ashamed of God to even seek him. Uh, and keep him to ourselves as much as possible. Yes? I think it's the problem is, is the people, like you said, John, like, I, I don't know if I'd be willing to do it. Yes, we're flawed, but we're willing to admit that, that we're not pressing to become more and more willing to give up our life. We're, we're admitting it, but then we're not taking the next step saying, gosh, that's wrong. I should be willing. So accepted. That comment's accepted. Let me say this. Nobody here in the U.S. is asking you to give up your life. That's what's so crazy. They're asking you to give up maybe your reputation. No, something worse. It's our comfort. Maybe it's your comfort. Yeah. I mean, so that to us is dear and dear. But, but honestly, think about it for a moment. I mean, in most cases, the reason we do not disclose our Christianity is because people are going to think less of us. Right? So it's our pride. It's our stance. It's our social standing. Uh, we're not talking about fiery furnace. We're talking about, yes, you, like I said, you could lose financial means, you could lose a job, uh, but no one's taking your life. And yet those things to us, we're so averse to any kind of persecution. It seems like we want our life and all the West has to offer, but we want Jesus to reign over it somehow. Uh, and that just doesn't seem to be working. Let me read the rest of the passage for you so that you can hear a little bit more. Skipping down to verse 24, course we know how the story goes when he sees inside the fire and sees what's going on king nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement asked his advisors weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire certainly your majesty they replied he said look i see four men walking around the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted shadrach meshach and abednego servants of the most high god come out come here So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, 
and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their body, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So maybe Anthony's point is very well taken, which is, in the story at least, these guys were promoted first because they were fit, if you remember chapters 1 and 2, and because they followed their own diet and they found that by observing what the Lord had commanded them, they were strong as everybody else. They were wise. They were trained. And yes, they trained in the ways of the Babylonian Empire. They learned its literature. They learned its language. That's something they did to find themselves in those positions. But look after this demonstration here. It's by God's hand that they're even promoted higher. And the whole nation sees these words. You know, we read these words a lot of times, you know, even my daughter knows some of the stories as we're starting to read little cartoon versions of the book of Daniel. We don't often read it from this perspective, though. We don't often read these words from seeing that the king, his commands change, and he does this strange thing where he begins to tolerate and say that nobody uh, should say anything against this faith. Um, Maybe it's that kind of sacrifice that it takes. To reverse the trend. Maybe it's not about achieving positions to reverse it. Maybe it's about standing up to that kind of thing and be willing to give up everything to say, no, whatever the good that might come from the society, I stand for my God. I will also remind you that the same story kind of happens in Daniel and the lion's den. We're not going to go into that, but there Daniel was told not to pray and they found him in secret still praying to the Lord three times a day. So in this case, they're supposed to bow down. They won't. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is not supposed to do something, and he does it anyway. He will not stop worshiping his God. And we have the same situation going on with Daniel in the lion's den. Not the Babylonian Empire, though. The next one that comes afterwards, that one's in the Persian Empire. Yes? Well, and I think this just continues to like, not that we should seek to be more persecuted, not that we should say, yes, we should, we should be forced to die for our faith. Like, not that we should seek that, but... The kind of persecution that's happening now is particularly dangerous because where is there room for this situation for people to stand up and say, praised be to this God because you defied this persecution? Most people, if we stand up for our faith in under this kind of stigma, it's like, please be quiet, you obnoxious person who is now like being super vocal about this thing. Like, people are going to shame you more for standing up, not say, praise be to your God, you can look at these saints. So if the question is, is it good for the, which is better for the church, I would still say not that we should seek this. But this seems to be the kind of persecution that's bringing forward to God as opposed to if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Look, I don't see anything good coming out of being ashamed of the gospel. Not only is it contrary to what Jesus wants for us, I don't see how that's going to benefit the church. The persecution that actually will help the church. And even if it's not persecution, what will help the church is when we stand up and do what the Lord commanded. Uh, And if that costs us something, then we have to consider that it cost him everything. 
We seem to be comfortable being called by him, being saved by him, having him in our lives to the degree that we do, but not if it costs us anything in society. And I think a time is coming when it will cost us more to be Christian. We have to start to make a decision now, are we going to be like this, to stand even in the face of increased persecution, so that we can stand for Christ. We have to begin to get ready to do that more often, because I think it will cost us. Next week, we'll continue this theme of how should we live in light of the coming persecution, or even the one that we feel now. How do we live as salt and light when people are encouraging us to keep our light under a basket? Let's pray. Lord God, we need you in us, Holy Spirit, to guide us through this, to give us courage. You promise us in Scripture that you will give us words to witness when we don't have them, that you will give us courage, that you will intercede for us even. And I ask for all of those things from you, O God, that you would empower us and strengthen us. That even in the midst of persecution, that we would still not be ashamed of your name. And Lord, if you would work in our society to change the things that are going on, so be it. Use us in those ways as well. But Lord, we don't put our hope in change for this world. We put our hope in you. So Lord, we offer you ourselves. Work in us this week before we come back so that we're able next week to learn even more how it is that we can stand and stand for you. Be strengthened to be distinct in this world and be pointers to you, ambassadors as you've called us. Pray this in your name.